Last week we celebrated Pentecost and just before that we finished our four-week series called Stretching the Kingdom and all those messages are available on our website. But this morning we're going to begin a new four-week series exploring the Old Testament book of Ruth. Now I decided a few weeks ago that we'd be exploring Ruth together in this time but as I've studied and prepared for this week it seemed as relevant as ever for us as we work out how best to live as disciples of Jesus in these days. The story of Ruth has been a favourite of many Christians and Jews throughout the centuries. In the midst of scriptures that are filled with war and threats of war, with trickery and treachery and among brothers and sisters, with attempts at genocide and brutal reprisals, with disobedience and unfaithfulness, the book of Ruth has generally been seen as an island of tranquility in which people generally act well towards each other and the community celebrates a happy ending after a difficult beginning. It's a Sunday school favourite and as we go through it together I'm sure you'll see why. It's got a wonderful ordinariness. It makes it easier to relate to I think than the stories of pharaohs and prophets and palaces. It's charming, it's full of compassion, it points to God's provision and quietly and without fuss seems to nudge God's people in the right direction in a number of ways. Ruth's a short book, there's only four chapters, so that divides neatly across our four Sundays. But before we go on to read chapter one, I want to take a few moments to get a sense of the book as a whole. Now Ruth is one of only two books in the Bible that bear the name of women, Esther being the other one. And the story is set as we read in chapter 1, verse 1, at the time of the Judges. You can read about that in the book of Judges, which comes just before Ruth in our Old Testament. And in the book of Judges, we read about 12 of the Judges, people of wisdom and bravery with leadership skills, with a strong focus on getting and ensuring justice for their people. They're people of political vision and religious devotion and have varying degrees of success. And the book of Ruth concludes with the mention of King David. So we guess it must have been put together sometime after King David. There's a school of thought that suggests that the book was written much later than that even, perhaps in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, about 550 years after David. And that comes from uh, studies of the language and the grammar of the book and the attitudes of the time towards marriage between Israelite men and women from other nations. And it's suggested by some that Ruth was written in that time as a sort of rebuttal to the policy of the day. Maybe, I don't know. But if we're not sure when it was written, it makes it even harder to know who has written it. Jewish tradition suggests that maybe it was the prophet Samuel. Most recently, the possibility of a female author has become more common, but it isn't one of those books where we can really be sure about who was involved in writing it. And I'm not sure that its historical setting is ultimately that significant for us and what it has to say about God and what it means for us to be God's people. What will help us appreciating it more is focusing on its narrative, reading it as a story that has been beautifully and carefully constructed. It's simple, it's shrewd, it's subtle. And to quote theologian Phyllis Tribble, it's a wondrous artistic achievement. It's deliberately ambiguous in places as well. It's clever and it invites us as the readers to be thinking as well as reading. 
one thing you'll perhaps notice as we go through this book is that God doesn't have a speaking part in the story. But the name of God isn't absent from the story in the way that it is from the book of Esther, where the name of God doesn't appear at all. Compared to other stories in the Old Testament, God doesn't seem to be overtly active or dramatic in the story. But God is at work in and through the people that we're going to meet as we study it together. There are themes of honour and shame and family and economics and strong female role models. Ruth is a woman who acts decisively to create a future for herself in a patriarchal society where no good future was on offer for her. But the main focus for most people uh, throughout the centuries of study of this book has been how it informs and instructs us as God's people on how we're to view those outside our community and people who are different to us. There's something going on throughout this book that involves legitimising and extolling an inclusive attitude towards those who are other, particularly in this case foreigners and foreign women even more so. In that sense, Ruth is part of an almost continuous challenge to God's people, a challenge to this ancient community's tendency towards narrow, exclusive ways of seeing the world, a challenge that I'd suggest remains key for us as God's people today. I was struck by the comments this week of Rose Hudson-Wilkin. Rose is the Bishop of Dover and has spoken here at our church. And she was speaking after Donald Trump had been photographed holding a Bible outside St John's Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C., amidst all of the protests following the death of George Floyd. And she said that the God I worship and serve isn't interested in religiosity. God is interested in whether we feed the hungry and clothe the naked, in whether we look after those who are most vulnerable in society. Posing with a Bible is not engaging in those things. And she went on to talk about the importance of giving a voice to the voiceless and hearing the cry for justice. And the book of Ruth is very much in that place. There's no religious trappings, none of the obvious symbols and buildings and markers, no attempts to use God to justify or bluff through a situation. What we have is a collection of ordinary people who have decisions to make, and it is in those decisions and the actions they take that we come to see something of the goodness of God. And in lots of ways, the story of Ruth models something different from the norm. It begins with a famine and death. It ends with a community harvest and rejoicing over the birth of a baby. There is a portrait, especially towards the end, of an ordered, harmonious, joyful community. It's possible that we can see this uh, as something of the peace-filled and just kingdom of God that was envisioned and shared by the prophets. It's a community in which the marginalised person has dared to insist upon full participation, in which one in the centre has reached out beyond society's norms to include those on the edge and on the margins. It's a community in which all are fed, a community in which joy is the dominant note, the story is a sort of memory of the future, a vision of a future hope presented to us through the story of the past. Now, I don't want to overdo it. Not everything is perfect at the end of this story. For example, women are still entirely dependent on their for their economic security 
from men. And the story has other issues too. But for the time it was written, it is radical in its kindness and compassion and justice. And I think there is something in it for us. At a time when our capacity to discriminate and exclude have been front and centre, Ruth's humble, determined compassion might just be the right story for us to be looking at. And so, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts and minds together be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so as our story begins, the author tells us about the circumstances that set the whole story in motion. There's a famine in the land. And famine and migration because of famine are familiar themes in the Old Testament. We see it in the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Joseph. And it remains a reality for people across the world today too, with people moving every year in search of food rather than staying and risking starvation. The family in question are from Bethlehem, which ironically at this point means house of bread because there's no food. And so they migrate across the River Jordan to the land of Moab. Now why the family go to Moab uh, rather than somewhere else is not explained. We assume that either the climate was sufficiently different there for the conditions to be better, or uh, they could have a better stockpile of supplies, or I suppose it might be the author deliberately trying to get our attention, perhaps precisely because this is a strange option. It isn't that far away, really. Would the climate have been that different? Not the most sensible place, perhaps, to search for a uh, famine-stricken family to search for food. But Moab and Israel also have other history, and I think that's part of the point. Most of the mentions of Moab in the Bible are negative. There have been historical issues between the two nations. But to Moab they go. Elimelech, Naomi, and their sons Marlon and Chilion. But Elimelech dies in Moab. And in our text, Naomi comes to the foreground. Elimelech is mentioned as her husband. And we're told that she is left with her two sons, rather than the eldest son becoming the focus, as might have been expected. The sons, while they're there, marry women from Moab, one named Orpah and one named Ruth. But the sons then die too. The deaths of the three men serve to draw our attention to Naomi, whose life up to this point in her culture would have revolved around her husband and her sons. It's a picture of grief and sadness and anguish. Naomi is in a foreign land, and now the family that she moved there with have died. When our loved ones die, especially those that we share our household with, amidst all of the sadness and the questions, uh, there are things about uh, finance and legal matters that need to be dealt with. And these days, a seemingly endless trail of paperwork. I know many of you have experienced that. And that all adds to the uncertainty and the struggle. And so there are all sorts of other elements to this family story that connect with ours too. Whether it's having to move for financial work or financial, financial things or work reasons. Working through the challenges of cross-cultural or inter-religious marriages. Of not being sure where you belong. There's lots of touch points for us in this story. Naomi has lost her husband and her sons and she's now very vulnerable. She's a foreign woman in a land where no one owes them anything or has any sense of responsibility towards them. 
it's tough. And to me, as you read these opening verses, I can't help but see parallels with the story of Job. It's blow after blow. They'd had a farm and two sons, and now she's lost it all. Her extended family, her homeland, her husband, her children. But taking back control of her situation, Naomi decides that she must go back to Bethlehem. She's heard that the famine is over. And for the first time, as we come to that in verse 6, our story mentions God. And I quite like the way the book of Ruth seems slightly reticent to mention God, to ascribe things to God. It seems more like how many of us experience life, recognising the importance of coincidences and human initiative, believing that God is definitely at work behind the scenes, but not going overboard in being sure about exactly how. What we're told is that God has become involved by giving the people bread. The rains have come. The grain has grown, it's been harvested, the famine is over, and Bethlehem is once again truly the house of bread. And so Naomi can go home. But this is not a triumphant entry. This is a sad return. You can imagine the people from their town, their village, saying, they thought they were being so clever going off to Moab. And look what happened. Where does that get you? Her two young daughters, daughters daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, They set off with her. They're going to go back with Naomi. But for them, this is a new thing. They're unlikely to have ever been to the homeland of their husbands before. And Naomi tells them to go back. It's too painful, perhaps, to have this ongoing reminder of her boys. Perhaps she's worried about their safety in Israel. Perhaps she's afraid of relying on anything positive happening and she's pushing them away because she feels like she is cursed and it's better for them to go now and to lose them in sad circumstances in the future. They have options. They can stay in Moab. Notice how she says to them as well, you can go back to your mother's home. One of the many subtle ways in which we're encouraged to resist the notice that is always given that the men are in charge of the family's destiny. Naomi says a blessing on them, asking that God would show them great kindness, and prays that each would find security through finding a new husband. This is an emotionally charged moment. And they initially refuse her suggestion. They're willing to turn away from Moab to embrace this new life. But Naomi reiterates her case and reminds them that she is in no position to provide for them. And finally, in verse 13, Naomi blames God for what has happened to her. This is the third reference to God in the story so far. Verse 6, God provided the food in the land. In verses 8 and 9, Naomi asked God to bless Orpah and Ruth. And now she says that the Lord's hand has gone against her. God can provide for nations and for individuals, but in Naomi's view, God hasn't cared for her. She's painted as someone who is questioning why this has happened, but she doesn't ask God to change her circumstances. It's more than possible, I think, that at this point her spirit is crushed beyond the point of praying. I know some of you have been in that place. Yet as her story goes on, we'll see how God often responds to those prayers buried deep inside that we're never able to articulate. Now Orpah does, as Naomi has asked her, and she turns back for Moab. 
And there's no criticism in the text here, no criticism from uh, Ruth or from Naomi for doing that. Orpah is listening, she's obedient. She's presumably agreeing with Naomi's assessment of the situation, or even if she isn't, she's doing what Naomi is telling her to do. And she does what everyone would have expected her to do in this moment. Ruth goes beyond what is expected, though. She's determined to accompany Naomi to Bethlehem, to cast her lot in with this older woman rather than to prioritise her own welfare in her own homeland. It is a beautiful act of devotion, and I think it shows us something of the faithfulness of God in these moments and demonstrates a remarkable devotion that we would do well to demonstrate in our own lives. Now, Ruth's response to Naomi, urging her to follow Orpah home, have become perhaps the best-known words from the book of Ruth. Ruth says, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Sometimes these words are used at weddings, sometimes at other occasions where a strong level of mutual commitment is being expressed. In the context from which they originally come here, they are words from one woman to another, from one widow to another, from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. To make this sort of commitment to Naomi is a significant thing, and her insistence about, being, uh, about Naomi's people being her people and Naomi's God being her God just add to the significance of what is happening in these verses. There's a commitment here to learn about the other's culture, to gain an understanding of language and expression, to cook their traditional foods, to listen to the stories, to learn the folklore. And these are no small tasks. The challenges of really listening to stories that are different from ours, of making the effort to understand the lives and struggles and histories of others, and of being willing to do all of that with open hearts and minds and a willingness to adapt and act accordingly. The challenges can be tough. It's partly why we so often, even now, retreat into spending time only with those who look and sound and think like we do. And these past days have shown us how we need to push through that difficulty and reach for something better, something better that reflects the heart of God and what it means to be disciples of the one who died for everyone. Ruth was going all in. Ruth is making a lifelong commitment. She will die where Naomi dies. Ruth's commitment is radical and it's sacrificial. And we'll see later in the book how Ruth becomes part of Jesus' family tree. And I think in her radical and sacrificial commitment, there is so much of Jesus here in Ruth's decision. And so as this chapter ends, we have two women committed to working together to make a way out of no way, to find security in the midst of a system that has little to offer people like them. Their example of solidarity among women is heightened by the fact that they're different ages. They're from different ethnic backgrounds, from groups even that traditionally are opposed to each other. And their specific relationship as mother-in-law and daughter-in-law would not have been without its own tensions too. And as they come back into Bethlehem, as chapter one comes to a close, it's the women of the town, we're told, that notice them first. Is this Naomi, they ask. 
It's been at least 10 years since they last saw her, and she's not had an easy time of it. Naomi responds by saying that they shouldn't call her that anymore. Naomi means sweetness, it means pleasantness. Instead, she says they should call her Mara, which means bitterness. She left because she didn't have enough, and she comes back with even less. But the last verse of the chapter reads, verse 22, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. A sense as the chapter ends that something is about to happen. They've arrived in Bethlehem. The barley harvest is about to start. And next Sunday, we'll explore what happens next. Friends, let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the privilege uh, that it is for us to have these Bibles that tell us so much about you and who you are and about the story of your people. And Lord, this morning we thank you particularly for the book of Ruth and for the way in which it has inspired and encouraged your church for thousands of years. And Lord, we bring to you these Sundays where we're going to be looking at it together and we ask that through your Holy Spirit you would speak to us and challenge us and encourage us that reading these words together and reflecting on them might shape and form us to become more like you. Lord, we see the challenges that this book poses to us, the great devotion and commitment of these two women from different places with different histories and traditions and backgrounds, committing to a new life together. We thank you for Ruth's devotion. We thank you for Naomi's determination. And we pray that their examples might inspire us in the weeks ahead. And this we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.